Well, what's more important, Christmas or Easter? Which one's more important? If you had to choose, which one would you put number one? I mean, it might be a difficult choice for you, kind of like choosing which of your children or or which of your parents, maybe, you know. But I reckon for most people, we'd probably say Christmas, wouldn't we? On balance, I think. Well, certainly whether we'd say it or not, there's a way in which I think we we show it. I, I think we... Well, it's, it's Easter, but where are the Easter decorations? Did you get any Easter presents? Did we have a special Easter carol service? Uh, yeah, did, none of that really happened, did it? In a way, we, we kind of have Christmas as the big thing, and Easter is the kind of other big thing, but it's sort of a bit more for us and less for Australia, and, and maybe it's a bit less for us anyway. But when you read the Bible, I think we see that we've actually got it around the wrong way. Christmas is awesome, don't get me wrong for a second. But when you look at the amount of information, the amount of talk about the Easter event, we see that it eclipses all that was done by Christmas. For example, in Mark's Gospel and in John's Gospel, it doesn't even talk about Christmas. We'd think that they'd talk about Christmas. And when you get to Mark's Gospel, out of the 16 chapters, the final three are devoted to the week of Easter. But how does it start? Jesus is a man. Thinking, mate, it's not going to fly. You've got to put the bit at the front where about the, you know, Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. Yeah, Bethlehem. You've got to do all that stuff. But it doesn't. So why do we make such a big fuss about Christmas and devote less energy to Easter? Uh, Probably the most obvious reason is that we've been hijacked a little bit by the secular world uh, where Christmas is the big event for families and for shopping and for holidays. Or maybe it's just that Christmas is a little bit of an easier sell. I mean, it's much easier talking to people about a birthday than a funeral. And when we talk about a funeral, we're not talking about the death that just sort of Jesus passed away in his sleep, of course. But I wonder if there's also a theological reason. And I have a hunch that the theology of the Roman Catholic Church may well be a factor in this. Their church has a big focus on God becoming human and, of course, the significance of Mary in all of that. Obviously, it's massive. And there's something about God becoming physical in our world that means that he redeems the world by living in the world. There's a heap of that in Roman Catholic theology. And obviously all the stuff with sacraments is massively big and there's a whole lot of theology that's in the Roman Catholic Church. If you dig deep into it, I think we can see that Christmas is is theologically more important than even Easter. Now, don't get me wrong, Christmas is very important, of course, But I think if we look at the Bible with fresh eyes, we will see that Easter is the centre. I mean, Jesus needed to be born to save us. Of course, he was born so that he might go to the cross, but that's why he was born. Easter is at the centre. And I think this is reflected in the Psalms as well. As we read the Psalms, especially the Psalms that are of David, and there's a whole bunch of them, we see a, a bunch of important insights into what the Messiah came to do. And we often see why he had to suffer. 
And that's what we see in Psalm 22, which is what we're looking at this Easter weekend. On Good Friday yesterday, uh, we saw what Jesus meant when he quoted the first verse of that psalm, Psalm 22, verse 1, where he said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Often we hear that God the Father deserted Jesus, his son, at that moment when God's wrath was poured upon him. That in a sense, right then there was a split, there was a crack in the Trinity. But as we saw on Friday, when Jesus quoted Psalm 22 verse 1, he was wanting people at the foot of the cross to know that he was afflicted, of course, but not that he was deserted. After all, the psalm showed the authentic emotional pain of King David, which was then picked up, of course, by King Jesus. But at the same time, that psalm, Psalm 22, which you can expect that Jesus, when he quoted from it, he wasn't ripping it out of context. He's thinking, get your head around the whole psalm. When you see Psalm 22, you see that it's talking of a genuine faith in God's enduring love and salvation, even when God feels far away. See, this psalm shows us again why Jesus became a man. And the reason he became a man is because he had to die. The action happens at the cross, not the cradle. But if the story finished at the cross then the death of Jesus would not be good news. We need the cross, but we also need the tomb. And not just any tomb, we need the empty tomb. Because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our Christian faith is one big embarrassment. And what's more, we have no hope. We just come here and smile and clap and wait for the end of the world. It's worth looking again at the Apostle Paul's passionate words about the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Let me read it out in full. This is what he said. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we've said that God raised Jesus from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And, and if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. And in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Oh, heavy words. If the resurrection is a myth, then this is all a joke. And so are you and your faith. It's a myth. I mean, Easter's the centre, of course. But friends, we need the empty tomb. And that's because the empty tomb shows that Christ is alive. Death could not hold him down, for he is risen. But when Jesus thought about the cross, did he think about the empty tomb? Was he thinking mainly of Calvary 
and not the tomb. Did he actually think about rising from the dead at all? Was that even on his radar, even as he suffered? Well, I think Psalm 22 answers that question for us. Because the final 10 verses of this psalm show a hope and an optimism for the future. It shows an outlook on life that sees that the cross was not the end of the story. The cross was not the end of the story. And Jesus, of course, knew it. And just as Jesus would quote this psalm at the lowest point of his life, he could still know that there was a future for him and for all who trust in him. On Good Friday, we looked at 21 verses. Here were the last four we looked at, just to rewind slightly before we get to where we're at today. It started off with, we read in Psalm 22, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. O Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. It's funny, a thousand years before Jesus died, David would write about people coming together and and disposing of his clothes. But it makes so much more sense, doesn't it, when we heard of the soldiers gambling for Jesus' garments, as we know that they did. Because this psalm of David was also a psalm of Jesus. And by Jesus quoting it, he showed he placed the whole psalm on his heart. The whole psalm, in a sense, was on his lips, even though he only said the four words in Aramaic. It's like, it's my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Oh, and all the rest as well. That's what was going through Jesus' mind at that point. And at this point, we see that Jesus said, you are my strength, come quickly to my aid. Save me, spare me, snatch me from the lion's jaws. See, Jesus, as he said, why have you left me? He's saying, oh, please save me, because I know you will. The future here is positive and is upbeat. And it's not just upbeat there. Something happens when we get to verse 22, which is where we're at right now. See if you can pick the change in vibe. Psalm 22, 22. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. David and, of course, Jesus knew that they had a bright future. They spoke of a time when they would proclaim the name of the Lord to their fellow believers. They spoke about how they would, they would praise God in the assembly, in the church, in the gathering. David and Jesus had a sure hope beyond their suffering. Jesus, at the lowest point of all, had this on his heart. As John Calvin spoke of this verse in his commentary, he said, How could he be putting himself in readiness, as he's doing here, to offer to God the sacrifice of thanksgiving, if he had not beforehand the assured hope of deliverance. In other words, he knew he was going to be saved. And that's how we can say, I'm going to talk about you in the church. He says, I will proclaim, I will praise. That is the certain hope of the future. Jesus knew there was a time when the Messiah would praise the name of the Father among the people of God. 
They would assemble for a special event. And as they gathered, they would sing the praises of God. The would be replaced with praising. And you kind of think, how could Jesus get his head around that at three o'clock in the afternoon as he's about to die? And yet in his mind is a time when he would praise God. There's an optimism there where mourning would be replaced with praising. And it would happen because death had been conquered. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And at that moment, the work he came to do was completed. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. This is what we read on, uh, in church together yesterday morning. It's from the Old Testament, but it just sounds like it's from the New, doesn't it? Isaiah 53 verse 4. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. No, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own and yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. All of that happened at the cross. All of it was done, fixed, finished. But to prove that death was defeated, Jesus needed to rise. He needed to show that death could not hold him down. Death could not hold him down. The Lord had protected his Messiah from rotting in the grave. One of the most famous sermons of all time is recorded in the Bible in the second chapter of Acts. It's when Peter addressed the crowds at Pentecost. And in his preaching, he spent a lot of time talking about the resurrection. And in that, he does a sermon that quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 16, another psalm of David, another psalm about the Messiah. Have a listen from Acts chapter 2. Peter says, but God released Jesus from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David, in Psalm 16, said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead. Or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life. And you will fill me with the joy of your presence. That's the end of the quote from Psalm 16. And Peter goes on to talk about it saying, Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself. For he died and was buried. And his tomb is still here among us. You can go over there on the hill and see it. But he was a prophet. And he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and was speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. Peter understood what we know to be true.
and by rising, he proved it. And so Peter would go on to say, God raised Jesus from the dead. And we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honour in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. God raised Jesus from the dead. And and that is where Jesus is able to proclaim and praise God's name amongst the saints around his throne. Jesus knew it was coming. And he saw that future with joy and confidence, even as he suffered on the cross. He knew that Easter wasn't going to finish on Good Friday. And that's because he knew he was acting as a substitute for us. And he knew that he was to represent us before God as a human. This is really important. Because as a human, he would taste death so that we could be forgiven. And he suffered so that we would receive salvation. All of that is linked in. All of that's important. When the writer to the Hebrews was writing his awesome letter that basically sounds a bit like a sermon in a lot of ways, he quotes Psalm 22, 22. Have a look and see what point he makes about it. He says in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 2, what we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honour. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into his glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he make holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Here's the point. For he said to God, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. There's a real optimism in the words of the psalmist as he writes about how He would praise God in the future as someone who would conquer death. And he's talking about Jesus of Shaula. But in this quote from Hebrews, we see it's talking about the true humanity of Jesus. And now that's not the the natural way that I would have grabbed Psalm 22, 22 to give you a talk today. I was saying other stuff. But it's interesting to see here that he really wants to say Jesus, as he puts that psalm on his lips, says... I am truly a brother and sister of humans because I'm truly human. And that matters because he became human so he could taste death for for us. If he was just some sort of angel who floated around, who looked like a human but wasn't really, none of this would work. It's only going to work if he was truly one of us. He needed to be a human in every way so that he could be, as the Hebrew writer says, a perfect leader, fit to bring us into our salvation. And as he suffered, he looked forward into the future to when he would praise God in the assembly, in the gathering of God's people. But it's not just Jesus who's going to be having the woohoo. There's a call for God's people to praise him as well. The psalm continues, 23. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. 
Honour him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. Everyone who has lips, praise the Lord. Everyone who knows him, praise him. But why? Why should we praise God? Why should we revere him, honour him, praise him? Verse 24, for he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. Why do we praise him? Why does Jesus praise the the Lord in in the assembly? Why should we, as saved people, praise him? It's because the Lord saved those who suffer. He cared for the needy, the ones who cried out for help. And I think we could probably think, well, who's Jesus talking about at this point as being the one who is suffering? I think most naturally it's Jesus at this point. Jesus is the one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. That's what he cried out. He's the one who's suffering. And yet the Lord has not given up on the one who is suffering. There's that hope. See, Jesus felt abandoned, but the Lord saved him. Every bone in his body feels like he's alone, but he knows he's not. We rejoice in the empty tomb today. We praise God because he's turned the suffering of Christ into our salvation. And he's turned the wondrous cross into the empty tomb. Easter weekend, Saturday and Sunday, is when we celebrate God's salvation as we are today. As we gather this weekend to praise God in the gathered assembly here, in his church, we are also gathered with believers in of all time in the heavenly realms. And this is what is happening. Verse 25, I will praise you in the great assembly. That's what we're doing. That's what Jesus is doing here. And he goes on to say, I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. What's he talking about there? Jesus is saying, I will keep my promise. I will keep my vow in particular. What's he talking about? Well, I didn't know, actually. So I found a nerdy book that helped me. Apparently, when God's people were threatened with danger, what they often would do is they would make a vow or a promise that after the danger has happened, they'd go to the temple and they'd sacrifice a special peace offering. We have a version of that. You know, you're in a plane, that, you know, the wings have fallen off and you say, Lord, if you get me through this, I'll go to church again. You know, that kind of vow sort of thing. It's a little bit more sophisticated than that, obviously. But Jesus as Messiah... It, it, it seems here that he has made some vow, in a sense, to bring a sacrifice to the Lord in the temple, the place of worship, after he's gone through all of this. It's kind of hard to work out how it all fits there. But the point is that the Messiah knew that he'd pull through this. He knew that the Lord would deliver him. The Messiah knew he would be delivered by God. That was his confidence. But how would he fulfill his vows? It's a bit of a clue. The next verse. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. 
another thing I read in one of those nerdy books is that there was a custom that the food sacrifices that were made at the temple would often go to the people who were the poor and the needy. That, that some sacrifices got all just totally burnt to smithereens. But, but there was a sacrifice where those who were poor and needy would eat of the food of the temple. And so somehow in here, after, related to that vow being, being carried out, is this verse, the poor will eat and be satisfied. So the guarantee of them eating is related to the guarantee of the vow being delivered by the Lord. The vow of the Messiah to sacrifice at the temple was something that would bring satisfaction to the poor. They'd eat and be satisfied. They'd no longer hunger. Now, when I'm reading bits of the Bible, all the time my brain's going, oh, that reminds me of that bit, that reminds me of that bit. I mean, you see it all the time. I'm sort of like switching left, right and centre. I'll put another verse up. But they're all connected. You know the verse that came up in my mind? This one, John 6. Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Worked out where it is. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God and distributed them to the people. And afterwards he did the same with the fish and they all ate as much as they wanted. Here is a time when the poor ate and were satisfied. So much food, they couldn't just eat it all. It's like, have another one. If I have another one, I'll explode. Just one more bit. No, I'll pop. That is how satisfied they were. The Lord's sheep ate and were satisfied. There they were on those green slopes, the green pastures. There the Lord satisfied them so that they would no longer have any want They understood what it meant for the poor to be satisfied. You know what comes after Psalm 22? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Right after it. He lets me rest in green meadows, just like Jesus sat down on the grassy slopes. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honour to his name. That is what you read straight after Psalm 22. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. That is what it means for the poor to be satisfied. We reap the blessings of the vow in the temple when we come to the Lord Jesus and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. We have all we need when we come to the good shepherd. And he's able to truly satisfy all who come to him because he's risen from the dead. The empty tomb brings the guarantee of blessing. That empty tomb is really important because when the tomb is empty, you can be sure that Jesus has done it. This is the hope of Easter. That is why we rejoice at the empty tomb. Because the empty tomb is the guarantee that death has been defeated. And that is great news and a truth that one day everybody will know. Verse 27. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. See, that is the promise there. See, even in the time of David, there was a recognition that the rule of God's king was global not just for the descendants of Abraham. The whole earth will recognise the rule of the Lord God. All will return to him and bow down before him. Reminds me of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It just feels like it's the same thing. And we know from that bit that just because everybody at one point in time will say Jesus is Lord doesn't mean they're all happy about it. Most people will get to that point and say, oops, I denied it. I pushed it aside. But now I'm obliged to say it because it's true and I can say nothing but it. There's a time when people will see that the empty tomb was a real thing. And that is because, verse 28, all for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all the nations. The Lord is king and he rules the world. And because he rules the world, it's not just the poor who will come to the Lord. It will even be the rich. Have a look in verse 29. We're getting near the end now. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him all who are mortal, all whose lives will end in dust. Everybody, whether you are rich or poor, will recognise that we need to come to the Lord to be satisfied. Because after all, everyone will end as dust. It doesn't matter how sufficient a pers- self-sufficient a person is. They might have so much wealth and so much to their name, and yet the time will come when all will pass away. All lives will end as dust. Uh, this weekend in the paper, I'm reading a few articles that that seem to be talking a lot about a year ago and, in fact, what's happened in the gap. People are starting to sit down and reflect upon what does COVID-19 mean for our world as we are starting to slowly come out of it. Uh, In in The Weekend Australian, social commentator Bernard Salt reflected. Let me read to you some interesting insights this guy has. He says... This infection has introduced us to the rather novel concepts that good times are sometimes followed by bad, that we have no right to uninterrupted prosperity, and that perhaps, just perhaps, we should not presume our security will be assured for years into the future. I think Jesus said something similar to that, didn't he? He goes on to say, I wonder whether in coming to terms with our individual fragility, with the temporality of life, we might not also seek out the security and the affection of home and tribe. That's sort of a bit of social commentator talk. But hear how he finishes his article. He says, And maybe this turning to relationships will lead to a rekindling of humanity's deep-seated need for some kind of spirituality. Perhaps we will seek out a, a, a reality to a higher authority to something that transcends the moment, something that makes us feel safer and more secure in turbulent times. Who knows? And that's how he ends his article. COVID-19 has been tragic, but it has been a gift as well to stop the world and wake up. The rich need to depend on Jesus. It is now the time for those who trusted in uninterrupted prosperity to recognise their poverty towards the Lord and to trust in him as they face their mortality. The message for rich and poor is that Jesus is the king. And so this is how it finishes. 
our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. Easter's not just for us. It's for us to share to the world. For people like Bernard Salt, who just wonders, who knows? We do. I was reminded on Facebook this week about some mutual friends who have made the decision that that in their family... Easter Sunday is going to be a bigger day than Christmas Day. And that is because Easter Sunday is the day that Jesus has risen, that death is defeated and that eternal life is available. And whilst this couple with their kids uh, would have presents and a meal at Christmas and so on, they've actually made the decision that they're going to have bigger presents and a bigger meal on Easter Sunday. Bit of a different way of thinking about things isn't it quite countercultural, and that is because christmas is the arrival of god's son but easter is when he's got the job done as we stop and reflect on this easter we know that the empty tomb is the most amazing wonder of the lord and we know that easter is a time when we can say he is risen He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's come together and sing.